Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we read, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Paul, Paul's instructions have included wives and husbands and now children. The spirit-filled life, like I prayed earlier, is supposed to be a life if we believe what we've read in Ephesians chapter and 4 and 5, that it is a life of joy and a life of peace and a life of thanksgiving and a life of humility. Humility in relationship is made manifest by how we really get along with one another. You'll remember we are to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord in verse 22. Wives are to submit to their own husbands and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church in verses 23 through 25. So the spirit-filled life is supposed to include a life of what our forefathers called domestic tranquility. Peace in the home, if you will. The husband, you'll remember as we've been studying this passage of scripture, the husband is preparing his wife for eternity. Now think this through. Jesus is preparing us for eternity. The husband contributes to the wife, preparing her for eternity. And now husbands and wives prepare their children for heaven. Children are to submit to their parents by obeying them in the Lord. So Paul is going to provide a dose of wisdom for both parents and children. You'll remember in most ancient cultures, respect and submission to parents was taken for granted. In Roman culture, the father had virtually unlimited power over his family. In the Latin culture, particularly in the Roman culture in the first century, it was called pater, father, potestas, which means power or the power of the father. When a child was born, it was placed at the feet of the father. If the father picked up the child, it was accepted. If he did not pick up the child, the child was rejected. If the child was rejected, the child could be sold. The child could be left outside to die of exposure. The child could be given away. In Jewish culture, a child who raised his hands against his parents could be put to death. Now, even though the Old Testament law provided for the death of a child in rebellion, it very rarely, if ever, took place. Paul is going to contrast the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God. How are Christian families different from non-Christian families? How are Christian families different from their pagan surroundings? Now, it's important that you understand something. 
Christian families, mothers and fathers and children, listen carefully, submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Fathers submit to the lordship of Jesus. Mothers submit to the lordship of Jesus. Children submit to the lordship of Jesus. We do not delegate our authority over our children to the government or to the church. The government's protections and the early church's protections properly understood was never meant to usurp parental authority and parental obligation. The church wants to be a part of your life and participate in the instructions of moms and dads and children. But the church's responsibility doesn't usurp your authority and responsibility. The church isn't the primary instrument to instruct your children. You are the primary instrument to instruct your children. And so, again, it's the biblical position that the parents know what's best for their children. And what's best for their children is contained in the word of God. And so again, we go back to what we've argued earlier. Is the government capable of abusing its authority? Yes. Can husbands abuse their authority? Yes. Can wives abuse their authority towards their children? The answer is yes. The very fact that people in authority can abuse their authority doesn't mean that the authority doesn't exist. And so here's the challenge. It's up to you to judge what is appropriate, what is the moral and spiritual direction that your child should take. You are responsible for your child's education. You are responsible for your children's instruction and their conduct in Christ. And so Paul will... Once again, remember what the theme of this section is. It's submission. And so in verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The Greek word translated children is very, very interesting to me. It's the Greek word technon. It means offspring. So it doesn't tell us young children, older children, whatever age of children, the section's theme is submission. Obedience has to do with action. Obey is a word that means to listen in such a way that you hear and respond. One Greek scholar, Thayer, uses the illustration of a person knocking at a door but the implication is that they, they're knocking in such a way that it's a, it's a familiar knock and you know who is at the door. So it means to listen in such a way that you hear who this person is. It means to listen with attentiveness. It means to listen in such a way that you want to make sure that you catch what is being said so that you can do what is being said. Wives submit to husbands, husbands to the Lord, children submit to their parents. And so a Christian home is a home where 
children are obedient to their parents. Paul sees the local church as consisting of local families, men, women, and children. And the fact that Paul addresses children in the passage must mean that there was some mechanism of family corporate worship. In other words, this letter was read to a group of parents, husbands and wives and children, with the understanding that they were going to listen to what was being said, were going to be held accountable for what was said, with the expectation that they were going to do what is said. It says, but you'll remember in Matthew 19, 14, it says, but Jesus said, allow or let the children come to me Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And so for the Christian, they're not in a position to say, look, I'm going to just let the child grow up and whatever they decide, they decide. That's not a biblical worldview. You you don't exist to go, hey, look, you grow up. If you want to obey me, fine. If you want to disobey me, fine. Can you imagine a parent saying that to a child? That, that's kind of crazy talk. John Stott says, quote, It was a radical change from the callous cruelty which prevailed in the Roman Empire, in which unwanted babies were abandoned, weak and deformed. Ones were killed, and even healthy children were regarded by many as a partial nuisance because they inhibited sexual promiscuity and complicated easy divorce, unquote. What's interesting about what Stott wrote in the late 1960s and the early 70s seems to have come come to pass in our culture. We live in a culture where unwanted babies are also abandoned, that weak and deformed babies are sometimes neglected, and even healthy children are seen as a nuisance. So what are the disturbing trends in our own culture? This, this morning I was reading some of the Pew reports that young people are getting married later and later and later, sometimes not at all. 50% of all unmarried people are under the age of 25. In the 1990s, couples who were asked about having children as an important part of a successful marriage, when they were asked the question, how important is it to you to have children? 65% in the 1990s said it's very important. In the year 2000, it dropped to 41%. The trend still continues. If you ask young people today, why are you getting married? The number one reason that they'll say is, well, because we love each other. Number three on the list is to have children. At the top of the list was faithfulness in the marriage or love in in, in the marriage. And so there was a little list. 70% share household chores. 62% adequate income. How many thought children were important? 41%. Think about that. People in the American culture are more interested in fulfilling their fantasies than child rearing. I was reading an article, Unfocused Families. It reads, quote, child rearing values are sacrificed 
things that we care about. Sacrifice, stability, dependability, maturity, unquote. More and more couples see children as a nuisance and a threat to their plans rather than as a heritage from the Lord. Parents are to make a provision for their children and protect their children. And the duty of the child is to obey their parents. And you'll note what the the text says, obey them in the Lord. The Bible doesn't say to to children, obey your parents if they ask you to go to the liquor store and rip it off. Obey your parents if they want you to commit crimes. Again, think about it, that you would even have to include this in the scripture. And I'm glad that the Holy Spirit did so. Because if it just simply said, obey your parents, mean, wicked people would take that to mean anything and everything, including hurtful and harmful and sinful things. Thank God, Paul wrote, children, obey your parents in the Lord. The the idea being, you should do exactly what is consistent with the nature of God, the character of God, and the word of God. And so, a wife's submission is voluntary, self-giving to a lover, So how is a child's responsibility or submission different from a wife's submission? Well, both are rooted in God's order. Both are rooted in God's revelation of divine harmony. But guess what? The expectation of the children is rooted in, what. look what Paul says, doing what's right. Paul writes that a child's obedience to parents is right. Again, think about this for a moment. If you ask the child, does this feel right to you? That you should obey your mom and dad? Are there children who will say, no, this doesn't feel right at all. I want to do what I want to do. So again, it seems crazy that we have to do this. But we have to ask a question of the text. What does Paul mean by what is right? Again, in the original language, it means what is normal, what is appropriate. It's the natural law written on the human heart. Children should obey their parents in every culture, in every society. Pagan moralists taught obedience of children to their parents. Ancient cultures all over the globe demanded respect and obedience from children to parents. And so Paul, in writing about the end of days and the ever-eroding moral decline, as he sees these last days unfolding and people being less and less open to honoring and obeying what the Bible says... He wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. So those are the signs of moral decay, cultural decay. These are the signs of 
godlessness and the precursor to the last days. And so no wonder Paul is holding out hope here with the Ephesians that again, hold on to the expectation that children should obey their parents for this is right. Listen carefully. Not because I say so, or not even because you say so, or because the government says so, or because the therapist says so, or because you are now under court-ordered obedience. The court says to the child, you can't run away. You can't sell drugs anymore. You can't sacrifice offerings in the middle of the night of dead animals. Why do you do this? Because God's word says so. And because Christ commands it to be so. And so in verse 2, look what it says. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Some parents misunderstand this text. They think it means honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And what's that promise? I brought you into the world, and I can sure as fill in the blank, Oh, yeah, take you out. Some of you have heard this. You had no idea that your parents understood the scriptures. They at least had some sort of understanding of this particular passage. But actually, that's not what the passage means. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Honor your father and mother. This is the first of the Ten Commandments that ends with a promise. And this is the promise If you honor your father and your mother, you will live a long life full of blessing. The verse number three literally reads in the original language, in order that it may become well with you and you shall be future tense. You shall be of long duration on the earth. Now I want you to think about this. Does this passage mean that every single child who obeys their parents is going to live a very, very long life. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It's possible that a child could die very, very young and be very, very obedient. And it's also possible that a disobedient child could live like the devil and live for a very long time. And so what is the overarching meaning of this? I'm going to suggest to you that what the text, when it says live a long life, is one compound word in the Greek language, macro, chronosis. Macro meaning long, and and chronosis meaning time. So Paul is citing the scripture and giving a relative principle from the word of God. Paul is going to combine two passages from the scriptures. One in Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land, a clear promise. And then Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 16, that it may go well with you. Now I want you to pause for a moment and understand Paul's thinking and writing and meaning. To the Jewish person, honoring God, excuse me, Honoring your parents was the same as honoring God. I know in our culture and society that seems really hard to understand. But in that culture, 
showing respect and honor to your parents was another way of honoring the Lord. The common cry of parents in every culture is, child, obey me. And children often think, I'm sure none of you ever thought this thought ever. Why should I? May have crossed, oh, I saw someone wince. So it, it may have crossed one or two of your minds at some point when your parents said, please obey me, or even demanded that you obey me, or commanded you to obey them. And in, in your mind, you, you, you were thinking, well, why should I? And then, so they're, they, they're trying to reason with you. Again, we go back to their reasoning. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world. The idea being, I brought you into the world. I have every right to kill you. Does the passage teach that parents have the right to kill their children? No, that's not what the passage is teaching. The real reason that parents, children should obey their parents is because God commanded it. Think carefully. Parents are stewards of their children. Parents are to prepare them for life. According to the Bible, if you're a God-loving, Christ-honoring, Bible-believing person, you're also preparing them for eternity. In a very real way, parents are surrogates of the Lord God. Parents are to represent to their children the graces of God, the provisions of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, the support and the encouragements of God. The, the parent speaks of God's authority and God's love. And then according to the Bible, speaks with God's authority, representing God's love. And so again, here's the powerful argument that you should be able to make with any of your children. They don't have to come right out and say to you, Mom, why should I obey you? Well, because I'm going to hit you unless you do. That's not the way that you reason with the child. You open up the Bible and you actually take them to this passage and you basically say to them, do you realize that God in his grace and his mercy gave us a wonderful Lord? God in his grace and his mercy gave you a mom and a dad. That may not be true of every single one of you. You may have to say mom and dad and maybe the mom or the dad isn't there. But God's given you someone in order to help you, in order to minister to you, in order to encourage you, in order to prepare you. And so that's part of the idea. The parent speaks with God's authority and has God's authority. It's interesting to me that when the Bible says that parents are to honor and obey their parent, or that children are to honor and obey their parents, it means that children are supposed to acknowledge that God is the authority and that they have every right to obey and love and respect their parents. So parental authority is divine in nature. And because it's divine in nature, and listen carefully to me, it cannot, it must not be delegated to the state. 
Now again, my attorney friend or my child protective service friend might say to me, well, what if the parents are committing crimes and doesn't the state have some sort of obligation to protect its citizens? I'm not talking about the exception. Are there exceptional moments when parents do things that are so gross, so vile, so hurtful, and so harmful, and they put the child at such significant risk that their, that their parental rights have to be terminated? That might be a possibility but it should be not inevitable. Even the state itself is trying to figure out a way for parents to retain care and custody of their children. So again, parents are invested by God with a great responsibility. Moses was commanded to say to the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 2 and 3, you shall be holy, that means set apart, I am the Lord your God. I am holy. I'm set apart. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. Keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. The instruction is honoring them should be the rule, not the exception to the rule. I don't know how else to say this, but bluntly, honoring your parents cannot mean dishonoring your parents. So the importance of the command is seen in the consequences prescribed by the law for those who disobeyed. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 19, it says, For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon them. You might read that passage and go, wow. But let me help you understand the passage that you're reading and even the circumstances in which it was implemented. Parents didn't just simply warn their kids, if you disobey me, I'm going to take you to the, the ruling council and we're going to stone you and put you to death. That's not what happened. What would happen is if children were recalcitrant, that means hardened, and they repeatedly disobeyed their parents, they were taken to the ruling elders of the particular city. When they were taken to the rulers of the particular city, the elders would plead with them to acknowledge their transgression and turn from their sin, and they were given space to repent. I'm going to suggest to you, I, I looked hard to try and find a single incidence recorded in Jewish history or in the Mishnah or in the Talmud where parents actually did this and I could not find a single reference. But here's part of the point. God sees rebellion as a very serious problem. So what is the first commandment with a promise? Paul calls it a promise. Listen carefully. He calls it a promise and not a threat. Why? Because, again, the long life is the practical consequences, the practical effects of obedience. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine a parent says to a child, please don't play in the street. Why would a parent make that kind of demand. It's for the safety of the child, huh? Have you ever heard a mom or a dad say, will you please put on your helmet before you ride your bike? Will you please eat right? Will you please go to bed? Will you please get up at a decent hour? 
please don't hit your sister. Now again, when you, when you think about these commands, what does normal obedience result in? If you are living a life that's pretty safe, if you are living a life of, that's healthy, the chances are you're going to live a little bit longer. Now, someone reading this passage might say, well, where, you, where do you draw the line? Does an adult child have to obey parents? I'm going to suggest to you, again, as you think about that question, I'm first of all going to give you a cultural answer, and then I'm going to give you another cultural answer. In Paul's day, the Roman father had authority as long as the father was alive. In the Roman culture, a child never came of age. In our culture and society, a child comes of age when they move out of their parents' basement. Now, when you move out of your parents' basement, you get full adult status and full adult privileges. So what does all of this mean? In our culture and society, there is a certain expectation that when you read, reach an age of accountability and emancipation, that, a, that adult children make decisions on their own. Now, again, does this mean that parents should, in a dictatorial way, rule over them? I don't think so. Does it mean that in a healthy relationship, should an adult child be able to go to his or her parents and say, Mom and Dad, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? I'm not asking you to tell me what to do, but I value your insight. I value your wisdom. I value your experiences. I value your pain. I value your loss. By the way, how many of you parents wish that you could spare your child some of the mistakes that you have made? Oh, look at all the hands go up. It isn't because they hate you or they want to rule over you. They want to spare you the grief and the loss that they themselves have experienced. And so, the answer is no. But again, there doesn't seem to be a statute of limitations on the commandment that says, honor your mother and your father. Whatever that means, it doesn't mean that you have to give them point blank, carte blanche say over everything that goes on in your life. But it must mean that you have a, a sufficient amount of respect and admiration that you could include them in the decision-making process. There are over 8 million assaults that take place every year by children on their parents. When I was a pastor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there was a young man who quite literally beat his parents to death in their bed for no other reason that he resented their authority and the control in his life. And if that wasn't bad enough, he killed them and then he buried them in the backyard and then the next day he invited his friends over for a party. And so what are the practical considerations? in honoring your mother and your father. Whatever else, again, that word means, honor, it can't mean 
dishonor. And so you've got to find a way to find a balance in your life where you acknowledge the reality of whoever your mother and your father are and you acknowledge the reality of the provision that they've made for you. But does that mean you have to obey them outside of the Lord? The answer is no, especially if they ask you to do something that is sinful or harmful. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, One generation plants the tree, and the next generation receives its shade. The idea being, hey, guess what? Your parents have worked and invested not to make your life more miserable, but to make it better. And that should be our goal. Remember what I said to you when we were first starting this passage with wives and husbands. Remember I told the wives, the greatest tool that you have to change your husband is to submit to him. Well, guess what? Children, your greatest weapon to affect change in your parents is to obey them. And so he inserts this wisdom for parents. Look what it says in verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. The New Living Translation says, and now a word to you fathers. Don't make your children angry by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction That is approved by the Lord. Listen to that whole sentence. Don't provoke them. And then he says, but rather bring them up with the discipline and instruction that's approved by the Lord. That very simple sentence is full of information. It doesn't just simply say discipline them and instruct them. It says discipline them in in a way and instruct them in a way that's in keeping with the heart of God, which is in keeping with the mind of God, which is in keeping with the word of God. Paul makes mention of the submission of the parents, which is completely contrary to both the Roman and the Greek and the Jewish culture. Remember, parents in Paul's day have absolute authority over children. They could beat them. There were no child protective services in those days. They could oppress them. They could molest them. They could put them in chains. They could sell them in order to satisfy a debt. Seneca was one of the great statesmen and tutor of Caesar Nero when Paul was writing this very letter to the Ephesians. Seneca wrote, We slaughter a fierce ox. We strangle a mad dog. We plunge a knife into a sick cow. Children born weak or deformed, we drown, unquote. Yeah, you you should gasp. It should take your breath away. Imagine living in that world. According to one report, the primary cause for children in foster care isn't divorce, it isn't financial destitution, it isn't the death of a parent, it's simply because the parents aren't 
interested in their children. Perhaps the most devastating abuse a child can suffer is to be ignored or neglected or forgotten about. Treat the child as if he or she doesn't exist. And this is part of the challenge. Because we as Christians cannot treat our children as if they do not exist. Remember, Christians are supposed to be different from their pagan neighbors. Remember the great theme of this book of Ephesians. It is the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation to God and our place in heaven. Remember, Jew and Gentile are united in Christ. Remember, male and female are united in Christ. Remember, families, parents, and children are united in Christ. And so we as Christians take our model... Not from the pagan world that surrounds us, but from God the Father. The picture that Paul paints of Christ following parents, remember what we've already learned in the book of Ephesians. They're spirit-controlled. They're spirit-filled. They're patient. They're educators of their children. And so how are you to treat your children? You're to bring them up with Discipline and instruction that's approved by the Lord. The New English Bible captures the heart of the passage. You fathers, again, must not goad your children to resentment. Some have read into this passage far more than it contains. Paul recognizes how delicate a child's personality is. And some have speculated, well, Paul must have been abused as a child. Paul must have been deprived of love. Paul must be having some sort of flashback of family abuse. But I don't think that that could possibly be true. Paul is making it clear that parents... Just like husbands and governments and churches and religious leaders can abuse their authority and misrepresent their authority. Because remember, again, I hate to keep saying it, the government's job is to promote righteousness and restrict ungodliness. My job is to prepare you for heaven. Your job as husbands is to prepare your wives for heaven, and moms and dads are to prepare their children for heaven. And so when parents make unthinking and irritating demands on their children, when they make decisions based on their own fatigue or emotional distress, when they goad their children to anger or bitterness or resentment, they're they're not properly representing the Lord. Remember what a goad is. It's a stick that you would use to poke an animal in order to get them to go in the direction that you wanted them to go. Parents can sometimes make unreasonable unreasonable demands on their children. Demands that they can't possibly fulfill. I want you to get straight A's. I don't ever want you to miss a day at school. I I want you to do this and that. I want you to win a beauty pageant at the age of four. There's, there's, There's wrong ways of thinking and expectations. And you might stop and think, what are some of the ways a parent can goad their child? Well, they can make unreasonable demands. 
Demands that a child can't possibly fulfill. Harsh discipline. Punishment that doesn't fit the crime. Cruel remarks. Lack of harmony between husbands and wives. I think it was James Dobson who rightly said that the most generous gift that you can give to your children, husbands, is to love their mother. And moms and dads need to have a united front in the raising of children. Parents are supposed to create a Christ-centered home and not a child-centered home. You can provoke your children to anger by modeling sinful anger. You can provoke your children to anger by disciplining your child in anger, by habitually disciplining them over and over and over again in anger. And so the challenge is to, again, have appropriate discipline. Are you overly permissive or overly legalistic? Do you admit when you're wrong? Do you ever ask forgiveness from your child? Do you constantly find fault with your child? Do you refuse to either praise or encourage your child? Do you fail to keep your promises? Do you punish them in front of other people? Do you refuse them appropriate freedoms? Do you allow them too much freedom? Do you mock them? Do you abuse them physically? Do you ridicule them or call them names? Are you training them with worldly methods, embracing pseudo-psychological methodologies that came straight from the lips of Dr. Phil or Oprah? Those aren't your go-to guys. We need to open up our Bible and say, Lord, What is it that you require of me and want from me in order to represent you to my child who I desperately want to go to heaven? It's interesting to me how many people refuse the instructions of the scripture as inadequate. The Bible allows for discipline, instruction, nurture, admonition, And then qualifies it in the Lord. The word discipline or nurture actually comes from a Greek word, padea, pais, child. Refers to the raising of a child. The the word was a word that was used in the Greek culture to describe the method or the manner of instruction as you're bringing a child from immaturity to maturity. And it incorporated all of those elements. The expression, bring them up with discipline, it means correction, not barbaric punishment. Parents provide boundaries. The idea is that there's a physical safe place with moral restraints. And the second word is, is, is a familiar word. It's admonition. It's the Greek word, nuthasia. It's a word that's loaded with meaning. It literally, if the literal meaning is to place something inside of another person's head. You've heard the expression, you're trying to get into my head. That's exactly what a parent is supposed to do with a child. You're supposed to fill their head with Good thoughts, righteous thoughts, glorious thoughts, beautiful thoughts, helpful thoughts, nurturing thoughts. It also, depending on the context in which it's being used in the New Testament, means to build up. It also means to cautiously confront with a view of building them up. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, and Titus 3, 10, 
in 1 Corinthians, it says all these events happened to them as examples for us. They were written to warn us, same word, who live at, in this time and age is drawing to a close. In um, Titus chapter 3, verse 10, it says, reject a device of man after the first and the second admonition. Um, that word admonition, same word. So again, it carries the idea of building up. It carries the idea of warning. It carries the idea of powerfully instructing and filling a mind with appropriate thoughts. And so again, Paul is speaking of appropriate discipline. Don't crush the child. Understand that the, a child can be easily discouraged. Wise parents understand that not, not all non-conforming behavior deserves to be labeled rebellion. Part of what's happening in a child's experience is they're trying to discover the limits of their liberty and the quality of their parents' love. Children are trying to grow up they're trying to develop their own sense of independence. Not to resist their parents' authority, but to exercise their own. But sometimes it is rebellion. And it's going to take wisdom to tell the difference. I read something interesting, and I, when I'm doing in-services for police officers, I did this for the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department and for the um, Colorado State Patrol and the, the FBI. I read, this isn't a Puritan's observation. This com comes from the Minnesota Crime Commission. This is their writing, quote, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these things and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up to be a criminal a thief, a killer, a rapist, unquote. And then I give them a picture. Imagine that little baby, six foot six and 250 pounds. It's a frightening thought. Children have to be instructed. Children have to be cared for. Children have to be given the tools in order to think and make good decisions. Lou Priolo has written a book called The Heart of Anger. In his book, he contrasts the Christ-centered home with the child-centered home. Priolo reports that a child-centered home is one in which the child is allowed to interrupt adults when they're talking, use manipulation and rebellion to get their way, dictate the family schedule, including mealtimes and bedtimes, take precedence over the needs of the spouse, have equal or overriding vote in decision-making matters, demand excessive time and attention from parents to the detriment of other biblical responsibilities of the parents, escape the consequences of their sinful and irresponsible behavior, speak to parents as those they are peers, be the dominant influence in the home, be entertained and coddled 
rather than disciplined out of a bad mood. So what does a Christ-centered home look like? Children joyfully serve others. Children cheerfully obey parents the first time they're asked. When I was reading this list, I I'm reading about the Puritans in England, 1730 and 1740, and part of an examination um, that was given during that time is this is almost a, a, a description of the Puritan child in 1740. But listen, um, do not interrupt parents when they're speaking to one another. Understand that they're not always going to get their way. They work their schedule around their parents' schedule. Have input into family decisions, but not necessarily an equal vote. Understand that God has given their parents other responsibilities in addition to meeting their needs. Suffer the natural consequences of their sinful and irresponsible behavior. Do not speak to parents as though they were peers, but honor them as spiritual authorities. Esteem others as more important than themselves. Fulfill various household responsibilities. Think chores. Protect themselves from bad influences. Now listen carefully. What, what that's saying is, are moms and dads to help them? Yes. Is there an expectation that they will one day help themselves avoid bad influences? Yes. Can you have the same expectation for a three-year-old as for an eight-year-old? Probably not. So again, you have to think carefully and prayerfully. And finally, do not divide parents over disciplinary issues. And so, what's the value of a Christ-centered home? It's having a Christ-centered father and a Christ-centered mother and Christ-centered Children, you can't have a Christ-centered home without a Christ-centered father and mother and children. Remember the theme of the passage, submission. Why? Because humility and holiness and harmony in the church has to begin in the home. And there you have it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we pray for our moms and dads and sons and daughters, grandmas and grandpas. Lord, we know that we live in a culture that fights tooth and nail to be child-centered and not Christ-centered. Lord, we understand that there are extraordinary circumstances that require extraordinary sacrifices. But Lord, in the grand scheme of things, we know that we're required to love our wives, to respect our husbands, to obey our moms and dads. That Lord, that's going to create an atmosphere for holiness and humility and harmony has at least a fighting chance. And so again, Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray that you would help them 
in the decisions that have to be made in order to best honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.